It's awesome to have you guys here. Tonight we're going to finish our four-week journey through the body of Christ. Next week, we're going to start a two-week journey through the concept of love. I know all of you have studied 1 Corinthians 13 at every wedding uh, known to man. We're actually going to teach, it, like, teach the text, okay, versus just hearing it at a ceremony or something. So uh, anxious to do that with you uh, next week, so come on back. Uh, listen, tonight I'm wondering this. I'm wondering this. How many of you right now desperately relate uh, with this guy right here? How, how many of you guys relate to this guy? Um, who here has insane struggles with allergies right now? Like it just, okay, there's my people, my people right there, okay? It, it's, it's always interesting to me in allergy season because you learn a lot about a person by how they sneeze. You guys know what I'm saying? Like there's the, there's the what I would call kind of the, the weak sauce sneezers. You know, it's, it's you know, they're, they're and it, this is really embarrassing when a dude does this. But, it, you know, they're kind of like building up to the sneeze and, and it looks like it's going to be epic. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, achoo, you know. And have you ever been, been, been next to a guy that does that? You know, they're like getting up, they're like biceps into it, you know. Achoo. And they're just like, dude, that, that's like, you should never do that ever again. Like that's unbelievably embarrassing. Uh, then, then, there's the, then there's the full body convulsion and projectile that you weren't expecting kind of sneeze. Guaranteed this has happened to you while driving, right? Okay? You're 10 and 2. You're trying to obey the rules. You're trying to obey Oprah who says don't text and drive. You're 10 and 2, okay? And, and all of a sudden you feel, you feel the, the urge, the sneeze, and you guys know the feeling. You know, it's kind of like working its way up in you, right? And then you're not expecting it. It feels like a clean sneeze, you know, and then all of a sudden, I mean, you can feel the, the phlegm, right, like coming out and you're like, achoo, and there's, there's people in, the, in your vehicle and you look, at the, you look at the steering wheel and it just covered. Has that ever happened to you today? You know what I'm saying? And then you're like, you're like trying to hide it from the back seat, you know, like hoping they didn't see that massive loogie that just landed right on your horn. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a weird, it's a weird moment. So I have, I have allergies and uh, when I was uh, playing football in college, I remember one spring in particular during spring practice. Like, I literally thought at one point, I'm not sure if I'm dying or if these are allergies because they seem so similar. I'm serious. Like, here's the symptom list of allergies, okay? Check this out. Here's the symptom list, okay? Next slide. Congestion, loss of smell, redness, runny nose, post-nasal drip. I don't, I don't even know what that is. Sneezing, stuffy nose. You got itchiness of eyes and puffy eyes and redness of eyes and watery eyes. In other words, your eyes are just a wretched mess. Uh, in your respiratory system, uh, you're, you have to breathe through your mouth and you got some wheezing. Also like coughing, fatigue. Like now, now I know why I'm fatigued sometimes, right? Blame it on the allergies. You got headache, you got itching, okay? That seems strange to say. Uh, there's phlegm, which would be great in a spelling bee. Don't you agree? Like how many of you guys could actually spell phlegm before now? Throat irritation. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how much allergies affect the body. It's crazy. Um, it's amazing how much little things affect our body. And, and this is precisely, uh, in the four weeks now that we've been journeying through this, what we've been learning about. It's incredible the things that are affecting the body of Christ. And for, for some of you who are brand new, listen, it's great to have you here. Let me explain. Because some of you are like, body of Christ, this is kind of weird. Well, well, here's what the body of Christ is. The followers of Jesus that believe that he died, rose again, coming back, that he's king, okay? 
Those followers make up the church. My guess is you're at least familiar with that terminology, the church. But I want to make sure we're on the same page. The church is not a building, brick and mortar, not contained in walls, okay? The church are and is the believers of Christ who are embodied, okay, embodied into Christ and then sent out by Christ. So so that's the body, the church, okay? And so when we say in these four weeks that there's been some things in Corinth that have affected the body of Christ, that's what we mean. Whether it's your first time or uh, you've been here all along, I want to recap those things that have affected the body of Christ. So here's just a few that we've studied so far in 1 Corinthians 12. First of all, there are insecurities in Corinth that are causing unhealthy comparison. Again, it seems so small, but in the believers in Corinth, their uh, insecurities are welling up and it's causing them to look across the look across the aisle, look across relationships and begin to compare their gifts. Well, that person has that gift. That person has this gift. I guess, I guess I'm not this or I guess I am that. Uh, I would say, and I've argued with you before, that the majority of your life is spent comparing and you know how insanely damaging it is. Seriously, like have you ever lived a day without comparing in an unhealthy, in an unhealthy way? Those days have to be freed from some of the slavery that comparison brings. We see it in corn. Number two, we've seen this, that, that there's a negative impact through the diminishing of those who seem to be weaker. We saw this last week. There are some gifts in the body that seem to be weaker. Last week, I used the image of the grill guy, okay, the guy who, who, who painted and cleaned and, you know, got all ready our, our grill. Well, that guy's not, you know, he's not on a plaque. He's never going to be in the limelight. He's cleaning the grill when no one sees, and what's happening in Corinth is the people that have those giftings are made to feel like they're weaker, less valued. Maybe we could even say less loved by God. This is a massive issue. It's a massive issue in Corinth. It's a massive issue here. And finally, we saw this negatively uh, impacting and affecting the body of Christ, a lack of suffering and rejoicing together. Uh, let me say uh, the truth this way. When there is uh, tension or division in the body of Christ, they will not suffer together and they will not rejoice together. When there's any kind of division, suffering and rejoicing in unity are the first things to go. Why? Because to suffer and rejoice with others, you have to literally die to yourself in your flesh. But when, when there's division, it's being caused by introspective, self-centric thinking and living. And so for us, our desire all throughout this whole journey has been to break those down. Now, Listen, I thought, I thought I understood so far in this study, the body of Christ, and I'm just being honest with you, all of a sudden in preparing for tonight, guys, I have an unbelievably renewed picture of what the body of Christ is, where it comes from, what its purpose is, and I I can't wait to share it with you tonight. The Lord, I believe, has spoken to me, and seriously, like, to take this journey with you, I, I consider it such an honor and privilege, so I want you guys to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read from verse 27 to 31 in its entirety. We're going to finish the chapter, finish our four-week journey. Beautiful, beautiful text. And again, seriously, for me, like literally a brand new perspective on the body of Christ. So here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. There are Bibles in the back as well if you guys need one or three. Uh, You may need one for each leg. It's all good. Here we go. Verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 27 and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, 
Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then miracles. Then gifts of healing, helping, uh, administrating, and various kinds of tongues, which, again, if you're brand new to the church, um, then this is a very strange passage, right? Like various kinds of tongues, you know, and you're like looking at your neighbor and like, is my tongue weird? Is that kind of what it's talking about? We all have different tongues. Well, uh, we're going to talk about it. It's not maybe what you think of, okay? So hang in there. Verse 29 are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret. Verse 31, this is weird, verse, verse 31, but earnestly desire, the scripture says, the higher gifts, and I will show you still uh, a still more excellent way, Paul says. Listen, there are a lot of contentious things in this passage. There are a lot of things that people disagree on. But seriously, the beauty that comes from this text is insane. So let's begin here in verse 27. Come on. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I feel like wherever this letter was being read in Corinth, maybe in a synagogue, maybe it was open air, maybe you know, in some sort of uh, uh, amphitheater, like I feel like all of a sudden it got very, very personal. I feel like everyone sitting in the crowd would have heard these poignant words from the orator hearing, you are a member of the body of Christ. That's who you are. You're individually a member of it. That's your identity in Christ. That's your reality. Now, he's kind of made those statements so far, but but I feel like if you could experience it now, I feel like all of a sudden the implications of being a part of the body of Christ get confronted And what I mean by that is, like, we talk about the church, and it kind of, you know, like, it can very easily just build warm fuzzies in us, and and we're the body, and we're the church, and we're one. This is so awesome. But all of a sudden, verse 27, like, literally smacks us all in the face with a powerful truth. Hear it as if you were hearing it in an amphitheater or being read out loud for the first time. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. In other words, there is no way that you can be the body of Christ and not represent him. So by being you, me, a member of the body of Christ, the weight of what verse 27 means is that you represent Jesus in all things and in all ways. This is crazy. The question is, next slide, do you want to represent Jesus. This is one of those questions that like our initial reaction is of course. I would never deny Jesus. I mean, I, of course I, I want to represent him. Like I, I never, I never want to not do that. And then why in the world? How in the world? Can we perform our Christian rallies for lack of a better term? And then find ourselves being built up in the word of God, singing and proclaiming about the death, resurrection, return of Christ. And then we literally find ourselves an hour from now, out those double doors, in a gas station, where God just puts on a T the opportunity for us to share the powerful truth of who he is. And all of a sudden, this thing that we were so passionate about, that we were singing about, we were even like raising our hands, a tear came down. We were feeling all kinds of fuzzies inside. Now, all of a sudden, when God puts it on a tee, we'd rather shrink back. 
wrestling with, uh, there's too much at stake. But, but I know this person and I've kind of like built this relationship with them and I don't want to hinder that. And yet everything in you, the spirit inside of you is just welling up. It's like, proclaim it now. Don't sit back. Don't shrink back. Right now is the time. And yet somehow we find the strength to suppress it. It's miraculous to me how much at times we suppress the spirit of God working in us. It's crazy. I don't even know at times how it's so possible, but I feel it. I like feel the spirit literally saying, Mark, now proclaim. Why in the world then would I ever shrink back? Because it's very easy to say I want to represent Jesus. And at the end of the day, I have to question, you have to question, is that really what I desire? Well, if I want to represent him, then I think there are some things that show, yes, I do. Yes, you do. Okay, I want to point out just three. This list certainly isn't exhaustive. Number one, do you want to represent Jesus? If so, then there is joy in obedience. Listen, uh, the first time that uh, I remember hearing about not having sex uh, before marriage, I remember feeling so much shame just in the teaching. You better not have sex, right? And if you do, you know, you're going to do this and you're going to get this disease and this is going to happen. And I remember like, like being so scared of not having sex that there was like this innate sense in you that was almost like you were almost strangely drawn to it in a weird way. It was like, don't touch the stove, it's super hot. And then like Curious George, right, you're like, well, well, I kind of I want to know how hot it is, you know, like, well, that's not that hot, you know, and actually I thought it was going to be worse. It didn't even, leave a, didn't even leave a scar, it didn't even leave a mark. I long for our language to be so different than that. What if, what if, uh, even in premarital sex, let's, let's say. What if every single person not just believed but communicated the joy of listening and adhering to a good father? That instead of hearing shame, 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 you better not do that. Don't touch the stove. It's super duper hot. Instead, you heard a good father say, oh my goodness, you will never believe the joy that will come in submitting to me in this way and saving the marriage bed for me. Like, you'll never believe the joy that will come in submitting to me in this way. Listen, if, if, you, if you just obey, I'm telling you, there is so much, so much, there's a lifetime worth of joy. But instead, so many of you are like, yeah, 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 shame, 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 I don't want to do that. Well, what about loving your enemies? I want to propose to you, you won't love your enemies unless you believe there's joy in it. But even the way we talk about it, like, oh my goodness, like I, I gotta, I have to, I should love my enemies. Listen, how about, how about unforgiveness? Uh, maybe you've seen this, maybe you've experienced this, my guess is you have. The only person that is suffering and not forgiving is you. That's it. So in your lack of forgiveness of the other person, even though God says, listen, listen, if you want grace and forgiveness, you must forgive. Instead of seeing a gracious, good father, dad, God, who's saying, listen, trust me. I know it's way easier to be bitter for the rest of your life over that thing that happened. Trust me. There is so much joy in forgiving. But instead, seriously, what do we communicate? We're like, 
I have to forgive, I have to not have sex, I have to not do this and not do that, instead of, oh my goodness, a good God has designed things in such a way that I would experience joy at every turn, at every corner. That is why the scripture says, be joyful always, because we can in Christ. Are we together? Is anybody with me tonight? So listen, you will not represent Jesus or desire to if there's no joy and obedience. And for most of you, I would say here tonight, there's a tremendous amount of shame and regret that's attached to obedience, and I long to see that broken. The second thing is this. This is heavy stuff. You want to represent Jesus? Things that show yes is you will make consistent, public proclamation of the truth of Christ and your belief. Look, how can any of us say that we want to represent Jesus? And there has been no public proclamation of that. We're sitting at the lunch table, again, stirred by the Spirit, like, I must say something now. Like a, a golden opportunity, again, on the tee, and instead, I, I, I find myself turning the conversation to talk yet again about frivolous things like the weather and the cardinals, okay? In that moment, like, we have such an amazing opportunity to talk about the truth and the reality of who Jesus is, and, and for whatever reason. Instead, we find ourselves shifting the conversation, shrinking back, not making proclamation, even though hours earlier with a bunch of Christians in the safe zone with caution tape around us, we were proclaiming in boldness. Is anyone else frustrated by that? And let me ask specifically about your life. Aren't you frustrated that somehow you can make bold proclamation around other Christians and the moment you get around non-believers who are in desperate need of knowing the love of God, all of a sudden you find your boldness being completely pushed down? I hate that in me. Does anyone else like frustrated about that? With Like, how can we sing these songs so passionately and then go out into the world who is in desperate need of knowing the same truth that we know and then all of a sudden we find our mouths being silenced by What? By fear of approval, by some insecurity that's, you know, that's haunted us for years. Oh my goodness. We get the joy of representing him. That's why it's one thing to say you're in the body of Christ. And it's a whole other thing to say, I long to represent Jesus. That's why this third thing is so heavy, harsh, tough. You crave learning more about Jesus. His character deepens your love of him, how in the world can you represent him if you don't know him? How can you love like him if you don't know how he loved? How can you forgive like him if you don't understand that on the cross he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? That sets the precedent on forgiveness. He's literally dying on a cross, bleeding out, and he's forgiving the people that are killing him. Come on. That in, in and of itself frees us to forgive everybody. So these are things that say in your life, yes, I long to represent Christ. I will represent Christ. And I'm fully recognizing that many of you walk in here right now ashamed. You're realizing, actually, I've said a lot of things with my mouth, but ultimately my life has said no representation at all. I'm saying right now, listen, grace is good and there is a different way. And so no matter how you feel right now, no matter if some of you are realizing, like, I've been a very, very poor representation. Listen, grace is good. Let's keep going, okay? So the beauty of the gospel, uh, the beauty of the text, he now adds this in verse 28. And God has appointed in the church, 
because we're the body, individually members of it. God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. This, this verse is, uh, is, a, is kind of a problem. Um, everything that we've been teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 has been about how we all are in the body and we all have gifts and all of those gifts God gives and all of those gifts are equal. So then, verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles. Anytime I see first, second, and third, I instantly think of like, you know, the, the pig who won, you know, at the, the farmer's, uh, what the, you know, the Charlotte's Web kind of thing, you know? Right? Like, like, so apostles get a blue ribbon, okay? And prophets get, um, what's the second place? A red ribbon. And... Uh, teachers get the fuchsia ribbon, okay? Like whatever the case may be. That's, that's kind of where my mind goes, right? First, second, third. So my question is, what, what is Paul saying here? Because if God gives gifts, and if he values all of us, then why would he list things out like this? Well, it must be Not that God loves teachers more or prophets more or apostles more and somehow those who are are in administration less. It must be that there are certain gifts that God gives that have a deeper, maybe even greater impact on edifying the church. Well, an apostle was one sent by God and even, uh, even initially, often the church planters those who were taking the gospel to a land that had never heard it before. Okay, Paul being one of those, planted so many churches. And we, and we could agree that Paul's impact was tremendous. God used him, God gave him the gifts, and then used him. It doesn't mean that God loves Paul more. It doesn't mean that when you take Paul and then the administrator, that God's like, you know what, Paul? I, I gave you that gift, and it has had a lot of impact and help in the body of Christ. It's edified the church a lot. I love you more, man. So you're over here in the section of heaven of I love you more, right? Like, no, that's not the case. But I think you could agree there are giftings that, again, God gives where all of a sudden the impact in the body of Christ is deeper, okay? is more edifying, maybe we could say. Not lessening anyone's gifts, but instead showing the value to the church itself. Now, my question is, how do you know when God has appointed you? Let's say it another way. How do you know when God's speaking to you? And the reality is you've definitely been discouraged before, like me, when some friend has come up to you and be like, dude, you'll never believe what happened. Last night I was laying in my bed and all of a sudden the Lord showed up and like he was drawn in a, with a crayon on the ceiling and he was like talking to me and writing scripture and he like added Matthew 29, you know, Matthew 20, and he like added a whole chapter to the Bible right there on my ceiling, right? And, and, and so you're listening to all this and you're like, man, I haven't, I haven't experienced that. Like, why doesn't God do that for me? Have you ever been discouraged before by a friend who just, man, has heard the word of the Lord so profoundly, right? So my question is always, how do you know? Maybe in giftings or just in general, how do you know when God has appointed you? Well, I think one great example is Peter. 
Peter denies the name of Jesus three times, including to a nine or 10 year old servant girl. Think about that. A strong fisherman, Peter, kind of brute. I think he's got big pecs. That's how I picture him anyway. Okay, this young nine or 10 year old servant girl comes up to Peter, the fisherman. Okay, he's got calluses on his hands and says, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? And he literally looks at this little girl like of all people and says, no, that's, you've got the wrong dude. What? Well, all of a sudden, this guy, Peter, gets asked by Jesus three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And by the third time, Peter's frustrated. But every time that Jesus asks, he says, feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. In other words, I'm appointing you, Peter, to teach and to shepherd. I'm going to give you gifts, Peter. So listen, sometimes the appointment from God comes straight from the mouth of God. For us, mostly that's through the word. Okay, you, you like start reading the scripture, and some of you have had this happen before, and all of a sudden, the, the word gets 3D. Have you ever had that happen before? You're like reading, and all of a sudden, like the words are like, you don't even have 3D glasses on, but you feel like you're at Star Wars 3D, and it's like the words are just, are just literally like coming at you. And then through prayer, God continues to affirm the work, and, and, and all of a sudden, you're like, I can say in confidence that this is what God desires, I'm called to go to this area and live on mission or I'm called to take this job because I understand that the impact is going to be great. Whatever the case may be, sometimes it comes straight from the mouth of God. But there are other times as well where in particular the body gets involved. Let me show you, okay? Paul and Timothy, check this out. This is an amazing text, one of my favorites. Paul says to his young disciple Timothy, which by the way, their whole relationship began by Paul telling Timothy to go get circumcised. That's how they became friends. Okay? Strange beginning to a friendship. Okay? Look it up in the middle parts of Acts, right? Uh, Paul knows that Timothy is, it comes from a Jew, half Jewish, half Gentile family. He knows that they're going to be ministering to a lot of Jews. So he's like, I don't want that to be a stumbling block. You go get circumcised, come back. My guess is you haven't had a relationship start that way. Here we go, 1 Timothy 4. Okay? Command and teach these things, Paul says. Let no one despise you for your youth, Paul tells Timothy. But set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to what? Come on. Teaching. We just saw that gift as part of the list in 1 Corinthians 12. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Check out verse 15. This is awesome. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, bless you, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In other words, there are times where God uses the body of Christ to appoint and affirm. There's an awesome, awesome teaching that the staff here got to listen to by a pastor by the name of Greg Surratt. He's uh, from the East Coast in South Carolina. And we were listening to this teaching. It was, it was so brilliant because the way he framed it was that we are either the voice of more in people's lives or the voice of less. And we in the body especially get to be a consistent voice of more. And that's what Paul was being for Timothy. Hang in your gifts, brother. Don't neglect your gift. God has given this to you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in these things. The body at times is used as an affirmer of the gifts that God has appointed the problem is your source of affirmation. 
God can use the body, but at the same time, the body can be a distraction. It's always funny to me that sometimes when you're in sin, you go find other sinners for coddling and to get wisdom about the sin itself, right? So again, let's take premarital sex as, as we were talking about earlier. So you and your relationship are struggling with having consistent amounts of sex. And, and so you know that there's this other couple that's struggling with it too. And then you somehow think that they're going to, right? So you go to them seeking affirmation from the Lord. And so now you just have this, this coddle fest, right? Like, oh yeah, it's okay, it's okay. When really what you need is someone to step in and remind you of the joy in Christ in submitting to Christ. We're so easily confused by the coddling that happens, right? So God will use the body, but let's be honest, some of you have been steered in a completely errant direction by someone that was a Christian that was a voice of less in your life. I mean, you were feeling called, you were feeling appointed, man, like the spirit was strong in you, all of a sudden you sought somebody out, you were called, let's say, to international missions. You went home and you told your parents, right? Some of you guys have experienced this full, you know, full blast. You went home, hey, mom, I'm supposed to go to Africa. No, you're not. No, like, I, I, I'm supposed to go to Africa, like, next week. No, that's not happening, right? And, and so now you're in this conundrum, right? Like, you, you feel called, you feel affirmed. Others in the body have felt affirmed, and you're trying to submit to your, it's just, it, it, it's very, very tough. But God uses the body as a means of appointing at times, encouraging. That's the beauty of discipleship. Paul to Timothy, like, they got to know each other intimately, so Paul could affirm or deny certain gifts. Okay, so as he lists these things out, it's not to say that those of you in here that are more administratively gifted, that somehow God loves you less, but what it is saying is that God uses and appoints gifts differently in different ways. So verse 29, are all apostles? The answer to every single one of these rhetorical questions is going to be no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? Certainly not. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. And do all interpret? No. Let's hang on tongues and speaking in tongues just for a second because, again, I know some of you, like you start talking about speaking in tongues and everyone's like, sweet, like finally we get to talk about speaking in tongues, okay? Listen, listen, there's a whole chapter almost coming up in chapter 14 that talks a ton about it. What I want to bring your attention to is in every list so far in 1 Corinthians, that tongue has been listed as a gift. It's always listed last. Always listed last. Why is that? Okay. Uh, The reason for that, as we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 13, is apparently the church in Corinth was really, really, really going after the gift of tongues. In fact, they must have thought that it was a, a sign of maturity. Just like some of the denominations in our culture that say if you don't speak in tongues, you, you know, you're some, some, some sort of communist or something, which is a teaching. If you don't speak in tongues here, man, like, homie, don't play that, right? Well, there's nothing biblical about that at all. In fact, in, fact, in the list themselves, uh, it shows the tongues, a gift for sure from God, only comes from God. Man can't, man can't teach you. Are we together? Man can't teach you God's giftings. God gives them. Does that make sense? Man doesn't teach you how to be a prophet. God makes you a prophet. Now, what we can do in the body is help hone those gifts or make those gifts more God-glorifying. But the point of all these uh, rhetorical questions is, look, God has designed us very differently. Not all of us are apostles. Not all of us are teachers. And then, my friends, oh, my goodness, verse 31. Oh, boy, look at this. 
but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Uh, okay, okay. Um, I'm just being super real with you. When I came to this part of the text, I was like, heck no. Like, I don't want to teach this. I don't want to study this because I know when I get into this, I'm going to unearth all kinds of varying opinions. And honestly, like I just, for, for a minute there, I just, I didn't have the energy for it. But inevitably, because we, because we preach expositorily verse by verse, you come to hard passages. Because my problem initially was earnestly desire the higher gifts. Okay, but, but again, in, in all of chapter 12, we've been building, and Paul's been building, like the equality of the body of Christ. We're all one. So, so what, are you, what are you doing, Paul? What are you saying? Well, there's two options. The Greek phrasing gives way for two options, okay? This is where people disagree. The first option is that Paul is saying um, more like, a, uh, more like a, a, a poignant statement. Like, hey, you're pursuing the higher gifts. You shouldn't be doing that. And again, I know right now in the ESV translation, it's hard to see how that would work, but it's possible in the way that the Greek words are put together. Stop earnestly desiring the higher gifts. That's, that's one approach. The other approach is precisely this. Actually desire them, pray for them, long for them. So now you can see the conundrum. I was reading some scholars, theologians that were on one side. I was reading some scholars, theologians that were on the other side. And sometimes on these issues, I kind of just present both sides and say, you know, both sides could be right. On this issue, I lean one direction. And I want to show you why. Two chapters from now, look at uh, what 1 Corinthians 14 says. Two chapters, we're going to be studying this. Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. This, what? This is crazy. Right, right in 1 Corinthians 14. Earnestly desire it, exact same Greek word, especially prophecy. Look at verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mystery in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies, this is our cue, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their, what's the word there? Come on. For their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So apparently, like we saw in verse 28, there are certain gifts that are used for the upbuilding of the church in a very, we could say, high capacity way. That's why I lean really heavily, even on the translation of the New Living Translation. I rarely do this, but here's what the New Living Translation Uh, parses it as or describes it as so you should earnestly desire the most what's the word the most helpful gifts so in other words like it's okay to pray that God would give you the the gift of prophecy we'll talk about that gift more at length in a couple chapters it's okay to pray and pursue that, that God would give you the gift of teaching that God would you know, he even caused you to potentially be a church planter or on and on. It's okay to pray for those things. And in fact, maybe even something you can or should desire. Okay, so that's verse 31. But the key to verse 31 is the end of verse 31. Paul says this, and I will show you a still more excellent way. 
the more excellent way is love. All of these things are true. All of these things are real. But if you speak in tongues and have not love, you have nothing. If you prophesy and have not love, you have nothing. If you, whatever, like whatever your gifting is, if you don't have love, you're nothing. And that's what we're going to look at next week. So four weeks, many passages and scriptures about the body of Christ. And now this question remains. Why is 1 Corinthians 12 so significant for us now? So I'm sitting down, listen to this, I'm sitting down. And I'm at this place in my study. My God, we've learned so much, we've journeyed through so much, I feel unified with my brothers and sisters. And then all of a sudden, the Lord put a very specific story right in front of me. And literally everything that I thought I understood and knew about the body of Christ completely shifted, matured, took massive steps forward. And if you don't mind, I'd like to share that with you now, okay? And you have no choice. So look at this. This is, this is in Acts 1. Acts 1. Please see this. So when they had come together, the disciples had come together. Why? Because Jesus had just, has just resurrected. They come together in Acts 1 and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He's resurrected and, and they're looking at him. They're like, it's now the time. Like, is this it? Is, is, is it game over? You wipe out all the Romans. You wipe out all the Pharisees. You wipe out all the people that have, you know, been in discord with us. Is now the time? And here's what Jesus says in verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Can you imagine that? Like, what a, what a great answer. Brothers, relax. Like, like, listen, listen. We can talk about this for days. Instead, he says, using the transition word, but, look what happens next. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my what? Come on. My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But Jesus, is now the time? Is this, is this the moment? You don't need to worry about that, but you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And when you do, you will be my witnesses. And is it crazy to anyone else that we're here because of this verse? Seriously, you, you have a bunch of disciples sitting around the risen Christ, and because they obey and God moves, we're all here right now worshiping Christ. Does that not blow anyone else's mind? They embrace it. They become his witnesses, and then they see the crazy. Look at this. This is so wild in verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. What? They're just, like, sitting there. He's just commissioned them, and then all of a sudden, like, Jesus just goes to heaven. Listen, there are certain moments in the Scripture that I, I wish we had on film, you know? Because I'm picturing like, you know, like all the boys are fired up, you know, like, yeah, we're going to be his witnesses. It's going to be awesome. They're like high-fiving, chest bumping, however Jews would have done that, you know. And then, and then all of a sudden, like Jesus just starts like levitating. But he doesn't stop it. Like, you know, they've seen him walk on water. They've seen him do some pretty crazy things. They've seen him, you know, exercise demons. And he's like, he gets to six foot and he just keeps on going. Seriously, can you imagine that moment? 
Like I'm picturing Peter like drooling out of the side of his mouth, you know, and he looks over at Bartholomew and Bartholomew's like, dude, we're just going to roll with it, you know, and they, right? But look at how this ends. And while they were gazing into heaven, which, which makes sense, right? As they're gazing, gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? To me, this is a stupid angel question. You know why, Right? And nothing against angels, but come on, like, we're looking into heaven because someone is ascending to heaven in front of us, right? Like, we have reason to do that. This is crazy, okay? Men of Galilee, why do you say looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. Whoa, 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 whoa. They're commissioned, they see the ascension, and then the angels say he's coming back. Now, um, God could have done this all kinds of ways. Seriously, he could have done the ascension all kinds of ways, right? Like there could have been some angels that like swooped down and picked him up, right? You're like, Jesus could have like turned into something and, you know, like flew up like an eagle or something. Like there could have been all kinds of ways. Why does God choose to ascend Jesus in the body form? Why do the disciples get to watch the body of Christ, the resurrected body of Christ, literally right in front of their eyes ascend? Why did that happen? Can I tell you? Let's say it this way. Look at this. Christ ascended to heaven that we might be his body on earth until he returns. These disciples get to sit back and watch the physical body of Christ ascend to heaven so that they would understand that now they are his body. That now they are his witnesses. God's going to empower them through the Holy Spirit, but they will be the moving, mobile body empowered of Christ until the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth, until Jesus comes back. And when I came to this place and my heart was beating fast and all of a sudden like I was seeing the body in a completely different and brand new perspective. Do you understand now all of a sudden the implications of this? Like all of a sudden there were scriptures that now like started reeling in my mind. Oh my goodness, I've never let the impact of the body of Christ hit me in this way. We talk about the body again with with, like frivolous statements. With niceties, you know, with oh we're the church together and we're singing kumbaya in the background. We are. Are you are like Paul says in verse 27 the body of Christ? He's ascended, and so now we are his witnesses. That's why a second Corinthians 5 makes so much sense now. Therefore, we are what's the word? Come on, ambassadors, man. That's who we are. We represent him, we are his ambassadors. He's gone, he's left the spirit, he's coming back. For Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You sense the urgency there. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect and yet took on our sins so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is anybody seeing the beauty of this? What's possible, what's possible is all of a sudden you're seeing the beauty, but you're also maybe for the first time, seeing the depth of the implication. That's where I'm at in this. If I am a part of the body of Christ and individually a member of it, then it is my joy 
to represent him all the days of my life. In fact, my complete calling on this earth is to be a witness. I'm not here to get a degree. My degree is a means to be a witness. I'm not here to get married and have lots of kids. If I get married and have kids, it's so that it'll be an opportunity to be a a witness. To talk about the truths of who Jesus is. I'm not here to build some sort of kingdom for myself, me and you. The only reason for the glory of God while we're on this earth is to continue to be the body of Christ by being a witness to who he is and what he's done. But you won't be a witness, you won't be a representative, you won't be an ambassador if these four things are true. Next slide. You will not will not be an ambassador or a witness, number one, if you do not believe that Jesus is alive. Is it possible that maybe for the first time in a long time, you're all of a sudden realizing that you have been a very, very poor representation of Jesus, and now all of a sudden you're realizing it's because you don't believe he's alive. If you don't believe he's alive, game over. But if he is alive... If he did resurrect, if you do believe it, then doesn't that truth and that fact alone have veins that run so deep? If you lived, if I lived every single day like the tomb was empty, then I put an empty tomb somehow in the face of not being approved by one of my friends? You see how ludicrous we are? We'll be fearful of how they think about us while the tomb is empty. That makes absolutely no sense. I would rather appease my friend than fully adhere to the fact that Jesus walked out of a tomb and is alive. Unbelievable. But we won't be a representative if we don't believe that. Also, if we don't believe that Jesus can save, forget it. Forget it. There's no representation if we don't believe that he changes lives. This is the point in the evening where you have an opportunity to remember what he's done in yours. Remember how you once were? Alienated from him? Distant from him? Just absolutely stricken in a repetitive pattern of sin? Hungry for more, not knowing what more was or is? And then all of a sudden, God being rich in mercy being overwhelming in grace, breathed life into you. And you experienced grace. And you experienced a love like you have never, ever encountered before. If you do not believe that he still saves, then you will not represent him. But if you do believe it, if you think he can forgive sins, then what in the world are we doing? If he can still change hearts, if what's happened in you can happen in others, even in the improbable, even in those that you've written off, even in those friends you're like, there's no way God would ever save them. Aren't you the epitome of that? Aren't I? Like, like, how would God ever save me or save you? Oh my goodness, the Lord did that work. He can certainly save more. And when we believe it, it drives everything. I believe the, the early uh, disciples and apostles 
fully believe that Jesus saves. That's why they were his witnesses. That's why we're here today. But number three, if you don't believe this, if you don't believe the spirit can work in you and through you, then there will be no representation. Because then in the moments where it gets difficult, in the moments where approval's on the line, in the moments where you have to pull up your bootstraps, in the moments where you have to fight through your doubt, in the moments where you're working through your fear, it's, it's just me. It's just me. I'm all by myself right now. So as you stand at the gate, leaning over, talking to your neighbor, this unbelievable opportunity to finally share, you're sitting with your roommate who doesn't know Christ. They've been watching you, maybe curious for months. You finally, finally have broken through and you have this, this precious moment to peer into their heart and to share the powerful, loving truth of who Christ is not in some hellfire and brimstone way, but the truth of the gospel. And, and then if you do not believe that the Spirit can work in and through you, that the Spirit can give you the words, that the Spirit could give you the patience, that the Spirit could help you understand when to ask questions and when to sit back, that the Spirit even could help you feel the compassion that it's going to take to relate to this person, which, which maybe has gone through things that you never have. Don't you think the Spirit can make that happen? Come on, you've been with people before, never having experienced what they've gone through, and your heart has broken. What do you think that is? It's God working in you. My friends, if we believe all of a sudden that the Spirit can and will work in us, do you know how much that changes? This is the body of Christ. But if we don't believe number four, it's game over. If we don't believe he's coming back, forget it. We won't represent, we won't be an ambassador. Because there's no hope. And so then what happens is we all play the game. We all play the stupid game where we figure out a way where we can have relationships, where we figure out a way in a form where we can sing the same songs where we figure out a way that we can hold rallies so that we can feel like we have a cause. While massive percentages of us show up with a mask, show up not believing any of this anyway, and the world just sees one more game to play. But do you understand if we believe these things? how much it affects and changes everything. This is the body of Christ. He ascends. We're left, the spirit in us, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And listen, I want to make it very, very clear for you. It's time to get in or out. You're like, Mark, Mark what do you mean? What I mean is there's no, there's no other option. There's no middle ground. There's no playing the game. You think the disciples thought it was a game as they were being beheaded and disemboweled, crucified upside? Like there's no, there's no game to play. Instead, those in Christ get the joy of being the body. It's our joy. 
Every single day, finding joy and obedience, every single day, believing more and more and more that he's resurrected, that he's coming back. It's our joy. Those on the other side, listen, I just, it's, it's okay to own it. It's okay to say, I don't believe in any of those things. It's okay. I'd rather you, in this, in this midst, own that. Continue to come, bring your curiosity. Continue to be loved by us. But listen, it's time to draw a line in the sand. Not for our glory or so that people could look at us and say, well, they finally mustered up enough energy to finally proclaim. No, no, no. The line in the sand is, God help us believe. We don't want to be silenced anymore. We don't want to be fearful anymore. We don't want to seek the approval of man anymore. God, we long to be your witnesses. Until you call us home or until you come back. So tonight, we're going to come to the table. And this walk to the table for believers is one thing. The walk to the table tonight is I will be a witness. I'll be a witness to your life. I'll be a witness to your death. I'll be a witness to your resurrection. And I will tell the world that you're coming back. The walk to this table tonight is the joy of taking ownership of that. Which maybe some of you have spent the last three, four years or months playing the game. The game is over. We get the joy of living a life. Standing in front of the elements tonight before you pull a piece of the bread off and and dip it in the cup tonight as it represents the broken body and blood of Jesus. There's a little card that sits in front of the, the elements tonight. And as you come up to the table tonight, I just want you to read this card. I want you to take it in before you pull a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. Just have a moment there where you just cry out to the Lord, even asking for his help and trusting him. Listen, I'm so excited tonight because I really believe that for some of you, right now is the moment. I really believe for some of you, you have spent so much time, so much time playing a Christian game and literally right now, all of a sudden, you're realizing, no, no, no. I am his ambassador. It's time for me not just to take that seriously, but to find joy in it. I believe that God is doing such a work in this room right now where all of a sudden there will be so much life that is found in you. So Father, thank you for the body. Thank you for the body. Thank you, God, that you ascended. Thank you that you left us with a clear call and commission, command. Thank you for the joy of being called to be witnesses and to make disciples. I pray right now for clear conviction. I pray against shame and regret and remorse. Instead, I pray for freedom. God, bring freedom in the room right now as we would embrace the thing that you have for us, the thing that you've longed that we would follow you in. I pray that it happens. I pray that the fear that some of my brothers and sisters have would be gone. I pray that the doubt that has been crippling them tonight would be gone. So God, as we come to the table, 
that you've set. I pray that you would stir in our hearts a renewed appreciation for what you've called us to be, what you've called us to do, and who you've called us to follow. So come, my friends, receive the elements, take this card. Let's celebrate Christ.